Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds, to another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There. This week is a full episode. Jen will be talking for hours and hours and hours. Four-hour lecture. Get ready. Get All ready, right. everyone. Get your I pencils hope you out. have a, a lot of chores or a long mm-hmm. run ahead of you. Excellent. It's gonna be a... Actually, it's no, it's not gonna be that. It's fine. <laughs> it's gonna be so long. But it is gonna be super interesting. Oh. Do we have any announcements or anything before we dive right do in? Do we? Do we? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Mm. Just If you're missing those full episodes, you can always uh, become a patron for $5 a month or more and get extra episodes every month. And lots of science news, if yeah, that's what you're missing. I would just let me just say that I've been doing a good job. I'm really proud of myself, honestly, for scheduling out the science news things, because those are easy for us to record. You know, like Jonathan gets the music in there. Mm -hmm. I get it up and it's scheduled out. So I've been feeling very good about it. Very accomplished (sighs) for actually doing doing the thing. You know what? It's taken a lot. I am proud of you. (laughs) Yes, we're getting there. We're, We're doing it. One step at a time. That's right. Baby steps. Good times. All right. Well. I think that's the only announcement. So today we're going to go back in time. Oh, back gonna in go, time. We're going to go back to the end of World War II. All right. This is going to be a couple of survival stories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from that era. Yeah. And some one in particular that is very close to home for us. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, fun. So just a little history. You know, I love history. You're into it. I am. I love history. On May 7th, 1945, Mm -hmm. Germany unconditionally surrendered to the Allies. That ended World War II and the Third Reich. Right. Ended them. They put up the big white flag. Yeah, they were done. But as you know, most people know, Japan kind of held on. Even though the war was lost, Mm -hmm. surrender was not a popular option in Japan. On August 6th, 1945, 45, the United States detonated an atomic bomb Mm. over Hiroshima. And then 16 hours later, the president at the time, Harry S. Truman, called again for Japan's surrender, warning them to expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Mm. I think we all kind of remember that. And then late in the evening of August, they still didn't surrender. On the evening of August 8th, 1945, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan and they invaded. They call it a puppet state of Manchukuo. Anyway, things were looking even worse. And then a few hours later, the U.S. dropped a second atomic bomb on Nagasaki. So just real bad. Real bad. Then the Empire of Japan announced that it was going to surrender on August 15th and formally signed it on September 2nd. 1945. I don't know why it took a few weeks. Right? I I don't know either. Maybe there's just like people have to get, they have to have like an official meeting. Or I don't some know. Kind of thing. I don't know. Letters. Yeah. Anyway, so World War II, so then everything was done. Mm-hmm. And the thing about World War II, for those of you who are younger, or maybe don't, haven't studied this much, it was very unique because it was everywhere. 
It was in Africa, Europe, and in the Pacific. Mm. And in the Pacific, in particular, there was some really, really intense fighting. Mm -hmm. So there was the U.S. was basically fighting against Japan. And it was just weird, like historians still like, why did Japan power up with Nazi right, Germany? Right, right. And I guess it was just that the people in charge at that time thought what they were doing was super They were like, cool. cool. Yeah. yeah, and they wanted more land and all that stuff. But they say that many historians consider the war in the Pacific to have been incredibly, incredibly brutal and devastating for both Japanese soldiers and American soldiers and mm -hmm. the people who lived on the islands, for sure. We know this. Yeah. Because a lot happened here on Guam and the Marianas Islands. Yeah. And I and actually, just in the last year, I went to Saipan for work. Mm -hmm. And I had mentioned it to my dad at the time. And he was like, oh, wow. When I was a kid, people would talk about the battles in Saipan like they were really awful. Really awful. Mm -hmm. And and that was one of the big key factors is that the Allies won the Battle of Saipan. And mm -hmm. that was kind of when things started going really downhill for the Japanese. Yeah. That was like the big, like, that was it, you know. But they still wouldn't give up. One of the things that I guess made it so brutal was the persistence of the Japanese right. armies. American soldiers that fought in the Pacific reported that it was really, really hard to fight against them. So Japanese were known for extreme loyalty to their nation mm -hmm. and their emperor, who at the time was Hirohito. And some of them, you know, American soldiers brought back a lot of stories. And one example was the Battle of Iwo Jima. Mm. And that was from February to March 1945. And there was some of the deadliest and worst fighting of the war. The U.S. invaded the island and was hoping to use it as a staging grounds to a larger invasion of the Japanese mainlands. Mm. And it was codenamed Operation Downfall. Oh. But Iwo Jima was defended by these very, you know, loyal Japanese armies. American victory was won because they had so many, like, planes and, I guess, the air forces. And then uh. just, uh, they had a lot of people. Right. They had just more numbers. Numbers. Thank right. you. Right. So they say of the 22,060 Japanese soldiers on the island that were fighting, 18,844 died from fighting or by ritual suicide. Oh, wow. Only 216 were captured during that battle. And there's this thing they called the Japanese Bushido Code of Honor. Yeah. And it was that with this like crazy propaganda that was coming from their leadership portrayed American soldiers as like animals. Right. That they're the ones that are crazy and will do anything. And so a lot of Japanese soldiers were like, we're not going to surrender. And they would rather kill themselves. Mm. Some of the Japanese soldiers were known to charge at American defensive lines, even though they knew. It's like, it almost reminds me of like when people commit suicide by holding guns in front of police officers. Oh, yeah. Death by, yeah. So they went into, you know, American troops when they were totally outnumbered and didn't have weapons just so they knew that they would get shot and killed mm. and also by ritual suicide they would carry a seppuku uh which was like the the sword the long the samurai sword, sword. right yeah it's really sad or by holding a grenade oh geez yeah it's sad and it's just hardcore i mean war is just terrible rough yeah anyway and a lot of even the Japanese civilians, like whole families, would commit suicide rather than be captured by mm. American forces. They would do it by grenade or by jumping off cliffs. 
And there was this like huge death rate of Japanese soldiers and civilians during that battle of Iwo Jima that that is why American leadership and presidents were like, these people are not going to surrender. Like, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Which was a key factor in that decision with the atomic bombs. But still. Still. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot mm. of thoughts on that. So well, I'm not going to talk about that today. Okay, good. Because I don't. Yeah. That, that's a whole nother. It's a whole nother thing. I just want to say that I've been to Nagasaki mm-hmm. and I've been to the memorial and it was it was pretty rough. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. One thing the American soldiers who came back from the Pacific would talk about, and this is like another level of like Japanese soldiers and how they felt about Americans at that time. A lot of times medics, American uh, soldiers who were medics would go and tend to Japanese soldiers. The soldiers would secretly pull a pen of a grenade to kill themselves and the medic. Oh, no. Rather than be captured or assisted by an American. Right. And then there was also like kamikaze attacks. Mm. We all know about that when they would crash their planes. So I'm just talking about all of this to kind of get push home the point that they were like fiercely loyal. They did not want to surrender and they followed their command to the death. Right. And that was the way they were. This led to Japanese soldiers that maybe didn't get the memo that the war had ended Mm. to keep fighting. Because, yeah, it's got to get out all the wherever they are. Right. So if they were somewhere really remote or they, you know, because of all the war, they had lost contact with the their command. Mm -hmm. They didn't know. So a lot of them kept fighting and kept fighting. For a long time after the war ended. And these are referred to as Japanese holdouts. So either they did hear about the formal surrender, but were like, that's not true. I don't believe it. That's a lie. Yeah. You know, because they're like, that's propaganda. That's somebody trying to Mm -hmm. trick us. Or they didn't know, like I said. But anyway, so they just, because of their fierce loyalty, they were not going to surrender. They knew or they saw their, you know, commanding officer tell them directly. Right. You are relieved of duty or we have surrendered and you can come back. Right. So like they said, we have one mission. This is what was given to us. Uh We're doing this mission. Yeah. Done. Exactly. This is it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about sometimes time, especially in the Pacific, because the islands out here are so remote that, yeah, that's something that if they're like, that's just coconut wireless. Why are you saying that? That's a big fat lie. Yeah. Yeah. It's just island gossip. It's so Yeah, exactly. Like we're still in charge. It's cool. We got this. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about some people. I'm going to go through a list of a few people that stayed for quite a while. And then I'm going to talk about a couple of people that stayed for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that today. I know where we're going today. You know where we're going. I'm so story. excited. This is a great story. <laughs> I been... mean, it's like, tra- it's all very tragic. Like it's because of war. Yeah. But also kind of incredible stories. Yeah. And just so you know, I mean, all that stuff is during wartime when you talk about Japanese. I mean, every, war is bad on all sides. Yeah. I've been to Japan a few times. I have tons of Japanese friends. I love Japan. Everybody's super nice. We're all getting along. Everything's fine. This was that time. This is a period of time. This in is a period history. of time. And yeah. we're just going to talk about that. But, you know, anyway, moving on. Moving so on. here we go. The first one I'm going to talk about, and these are going to be short, is, and I'm going to just totally mess up all these names. But for some reason, I feel like Japanese names and words are easier to pronounce yeah, than they, other languages. Because you pronounce every single letter. Yeah. That's why. 
Is that is it, that's, that's the thing. what it is? Okay, so I only had like this very short time. Do you remember the the JICA volunteer, the Japanese yes. Peace Corps volunteer used to work at agriculture? Yes. What was her name? It was a dude. Oh no, I remember the girl that stayed. Oh, maybe time. after. Yeah. Oh, you talking about is that Emmy? Yes. Emmy. Yes. Yeah. No. So there was a guy who worked at Tsushi. Okay. He worked at agriculture with me. Okay. And I was like, hey, I want to learn Japanese. I'm going to go to Japan. Like, yes. I, I was like, I'm going to go there. I want to mm-hmm. learn. I want to be able to go and, like, ask things or whatever. And he was like, cool. So we started these lessons. Oh, really? I and don't that remember was, that. You don't remember? No. And that was, like, one of the very first things he ever told me was, in Japanese, you pronounce every single letter. And I was like, okay. Unless you learn kanji and then you're just like, I don't know. Yeah. He was like, he first, well, okay, part of it was, I mean, he was like, I'm going to teach you like the basic Japanese. He's like, there are levels, okay? Uh-huh. And like, there's like this highlight. You're not going to learn that. We're not going to do that. You're going to learn basic, yes. like baby Japanese. Thank you. And I was like, cool. Did you learn stuff? Or in Jujutsu. That's, no. <laughs> I think I learned more from our roommate Momo than oh, I did yeah, from him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just remember learning maybe like Watashi wa Megan, like that kind of stuff. Like uh-huh. my name is Megan, like it's kind of stupid. Desuka, like, like where is something? Uh-huh. That's basically it. And then Momo taught us really cool stuff, like before you eat and you go like, itadakimasu, right? Uh-huh. And you like pull your things anyway. There so was, fun. when I went to Nagasaki, was to visit a friend that was in that JET program, the Japanese yeah. English teacher, where mm-hmm. you can go for a couple of years. And yeah, he had been there, I think, a year or two. And he was learning how to read kanji at that point. Yeah. But he could speak Japanese pretty well. And because where he was at, no one spoke English. Right. And there was this couple that took us all over the place. They didn't speak any English and we spoke no, no Japanese at all, but we had the best time all day. It was crazy. Yeah. 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 It was great. I've always had just amazing experiences. Yeah. So I've been to Nagasaki and I went to, I always forget. Kyoto? No, the one with the meat. The meat. Yeah. The famous meat. Oh, are you talking about, wow, it just went out of my head. Wagyu? No. Wagyu beef? No. (laughs) No, it's the other... uh, Frick. Anyway, it'll come to me. Someone will tell us. No, it's... (laughs) Now I want to stop and look at it. It was Kobe. Yes. Yes, it was beautiful. And I went there. They invited me to go talk about sea turtles. That's fun. It was really fun. I felt so cool. Anyway, so... Okay, sorry. Moving on, guys. You you know how we are. So I'm going to talk about... Yamakage Kufuku and Matsudo Linsoki. And they were two Navy machine gunners. They uh, surrendered on Iwo Jima. Uh, While the original news article didn't correctly report their names, their correct names were known to be um, known when they co-authored this book in 1968 on their experience under that. So basically, they were there for three years and 130 days on Iwo Jima. Oh. Before they actually surrendered just chilling like ready to fight they were just still trying to fight oh wow they were holding out there's another one murata susumu and that one he did not surrender and he was on tinian oh which we've been to tinian yeah it's just north oh, of here i've only seen tinian but i've never actually been oh you haven't been to i've just seen it from saipan so you go to saipan just for everybody and then you get on this like plane that holds like four or five people like three things it's tiny hang on (laughs) yeah you just climb in it's super small and cramped and you just like like it takes like 10 minutes and you're like let me live (laughs) and then you just get there and then you get out it's really a quick 
ride. Yeah. And then you come back, ring, 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 like you fly back. I feel like it's like the smallest plane ever. <laughs> and it is, it is so close. It makes me think like, why don't people take boats? But it's so fast to fly. Yeah. And there's just planes constantly going. Yeah. Yeah. And these like random, there's all these pilots and they're just like, they seem like a, like a party bunch. Just so you know, that sound that you made, <laughs> that you made for the plane is like kind of perfection. Like it really reminds me of when cartoons would have a plane. It's a cartoon plane noise. Yes. Yes. It's because it's, so it's like part so insect. Many, you watched too many Looney Tunes. I did. That's all yeah. I did. Okay. So he was there holding out until 1953. Whoa. He was captured. And I I didn't do the story on all these because we'd be here all day, but he was yeah. there eight years and 120 days. Wow. Yep. And then um, in 1955, there was Noboru Kenoshita. He was captured in the Luzon jungle, but shortly after, apparently he died by suicide by hanging himself rather than return to Japan in defeat. He was there 10 years and 89 days. And then we have one on Guam. This one is Bunzo Minagawa. And he was, he held out on Guam until May 1960. 14 years, 261 days. There's another one that was Masashi Ito. It's also 1960, 14 years, 264 days. I guess he was the superior for the other guy. And he surrendered shortly after. Okay, before I go into our, I guess I would say it, the top three. Okay. I'm going to talk about some groups of people that were found. Okay. Holdouts. Group holdouts. Group holdouts. Got it. So there was Captain Sakai Oba. He was leading a company of 46 men. And they say in guerrilla actions against U.S. troops following the Battle of Saipan. Um, And they did not surrender until December 1st, 1945, which was three months after the war had ended. And then I think like everybody was like, you guys, it's (laughs) it's over. They're like, we don't believe you. (laughs) It's like, it's not over. But it is. And then January 1st, 1946, there were 20 Japanese army personnel that had been hiding in a tunnel at Corregidor Island. I'm not sure where that is. Mm. Corrig. I'm probably not saying that correctly at all. They surrendered to U.S. servicemen after learning the war had ended from a newspaper they found while they were out trying to look for water. Interesting. There was Lieutenant I Yamaguchi, and he had 33 soldiers with him. They emerged in Peleliu, which is in Palau, Palau, in late March of 1947. And they were trying to attack these U.S. Marine Corps. <laughs> um, it was a detachment that was stationed on the island, and they thought the war was still being fought. Right. They had no idea. Everybody um, in Palau was like, calm down. <laughs> he's like, what the, where the hell did you guys come from? Imagine, there's like 34 of them. So reinforcements were sent in along with a Japanese admiral who convinced them that the war was over. Oh, wow. And so that's how they finally surrendered. That's, I got to say, for probably because they're just like, they're still in the mindset of war, right? Yeah. But then I, I'm sure it would be a shock to then see a Japanese admiral with a bunch of Americans. And they're like, just like, wait, what? What What are you doing? Yeah. And I'm sure there would be like a lot of confusion. Yes. On May 12, 1948, the Associated Press reported that there were two unnamed Japanese soldiers that surrendered to civilian policemen in Guam the day before. So Guam still had a lot of holdouts. Well, there's a lot of caves here. That's why. Heidi holes in June. On June 27, 1951, there was reported that a Japanese petty officer who surrendered on 
Anatahan Island, which is in the Marianas, which mm-hmm. is north of us. Two weeks before, I guess there were 18 other holdouts there. A U.S. Navy plane that flew over the island spotted 18 Japanese soldiers on a beach waving white flags. Oh. They're probably like, get us the F out of here. <laughs> like, we're good. <laughs> we we're don't want to be on this island. Just anywhere. <laughs> so, and it's like, there's an active volcano on that island. Yeah. Yeah. So they were probably, probably like. It's probably a little more dangerous. Pro- yes. Yeah. I guess the Navy was still kind of like, we're sh- we're not sure about this. Right. Um, Is it a trap? Yeah. They guess they were a little more cautious because the Navy petty officer warned that the soldiers were well armed and that some of them threatened to kill anyone who tried to give themselves up. So the leaders professed to believe that the war is still on. That's Mm. what they were saying. The Navy dispatched a a tug boat called Mm. the Kokopa. (laughs) to the island in hopes of picking up some or all the soldiers without any problems but after a formal surrender ceremony all the men were retrieved so i guess it all went okay it went okay that's good yeah they say that the japanese occupation of the island inspired the 1953 film anatahan oh okay i guess there's a film from 1953 called that (laughs) i never haven't seen it yeah i missed that one and there's another one a 1998 novel cage on the sea Hmm. Never heard of that either. No. You guys go check it out. In 1955, there were four Japanese airmen that surrendered at Hollandia in the Dutch New Guinea. They were survivors of a bigger group. In 1956, there were nine soldiers were discovered and sent home from Morotai. And then there were, in November 1956, four men surrendered on the island of Mindoro. And that is it for the groups. But all the way to 1956. Yeah. That's 11 years. I would assume that there would be some kind of priority uh, in terms of like the Japanese government, right? They like, uh, they surrender. Then everybody kind of close to wherever the emperor is, right? Like mm-hmm. they understand like the message gets out, everybody's surrendering, whatever. And then they have to get to all these other outposts. And it's like, you know, probably like a place uh, that's a little bit bigger would have like a higher priority. And then these like random little Tiny islands. islands. Yeah. They're like, do you guys think there's still people there? Like, should we go <laughs> like, check? Well, yeah. And it's you know? just, I think that, I mean, we know how slow things go in the government. And mm-hmm. I realize that Japan is way more efficient than like sure. the U.S. government, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I would still. think that like you just lost a war. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff happening. Well, yeah. And there's, I mean, they were devastated financially and from the yeah and the bombing yeah just everything was bad news i'm sure all of that was yeah so i think it probably just took some time yeah to get it to get all that pulled back would you feel weird as a soldier like being one of the last people to know like would you feel like kind of sad about it like all these years went by you were left behind and you were just there like still in like war mode i feel like you would but yeah, in some sad. of these situations, they tried to tell them, but they mm. just didn't believe it. Right. So. But I'm just thinking about those soldiers that found the newspaper. I totally understand the loyalty in yeah. Japan, right? And like mm-hmm. kind of the, the society. Respect. There's like a lot of pressure in the society to be a certain way. Yeah. I've, you know, read about it. I've heard about it from Japanese people that I've met. But it's like, I wonder if there were people. I'm sure there are people who are just like, ah, you know is this over yet? You know, like, and I'm just wondering, they see the newspaper when they're out, like doing whatever. And they're like, (laughs) we're done. Like, this is over. Yeah. Can we go home now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk about this one that's near and dear to us. Yes. We're going to talk about 
Shoichi Yokoi. He was born in the Aichi Prefecture, did I say that right, of Japan in 1915. Um, He worked as a tailor before he got drafted into the Imperial Japanese Army in 1941. He was stationed in China until February 1943, and then he was transferred to Guam in 1943. So we're getting close, right? And this is uh, after American forces, I guess, did a real number on his regiment in the summer of 1944. So they lost a lot of soldiers. He and a group of nine, they say nine or 10 comrades escaped into the jungle to hide out. His nephew, whose name is Omi Hatishin, is one that gave a lot of interviews to like BBC, New York Times, and a lot of these things. So there's a lot of quotes from him. He said, from the outset, they took enormous care not to be detected, erasing their footprints as they moved through the undergrowth. And this is because he always, I guess, talked to his uncle about what happened. Yeah. And so now he, they interview. He heard all the stories. He heard yeah. all the stories. He said, initially, the holdouts survived by eating the cattle like they could find from locals, which I'm sure people <laughs> were like pissed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're talking about like... On Guam here. Caribou? Caribou. Caribou? <laughs> yes. Water uh, buffalo. Water buffalo. Or it could just you. be cows. People have cows Yeah, here. that's true. But as their group, like I guess the number shrank... And it became more likely that they might be found. Mm. I guess they broke up, broke up into smaller groups and went to more remote sections of the island. And they stayed in caves yeah. or these underground shelters that they made. They ate coconuts, papaya, frogs, mm. toads, eels, and rats. <sighs> By 1946, from the original 10 holdouts, Yokoi remained with only two other soldiers. Mm. Their names were... Shichi Mikio and Nakahati Satoshi. Good job. Thank you. He stayed with them for a few years until they separated. And then he was alone for a year. And then they, I don't know, you know, this is a long time. And then they were back together, like staying <laughs> with them in like 1950. Um, and they moved to different places and the, until they decided to build this underground cave. And there's a picture of what it looks like. Yeah. So in the... You guys should check it out. They tried different ways to kind of dig like a place that would work. I guess there were, they had some disagreements <laughs> um, over how it should be done and how they should prep and store their food. Mm-hmm. And I just think about it because Guam is just hot and humid. And I can't imagine being underground in a cave, like well, building an underground shelter. At least it would be cooler. And also having to like store food. I mean, it makes sense that you want to, like, bury things or, like, keep it underground because it's just cooler there. But my question is, what happened to those other seven people? Did they just, Um, like, die or did, like, someone... I don't know if I talk about it later. I think they... Some of them surrendered. Uh, I think. They are like, we're done with this cave living. Yeah, or they were caught or surrendered. Right, right, right. It might be those other guys I talked about. Yeah, I found, got found on Guam. So according to, this is a quote from him, we dug uh, a cave in a bamboo thicket, but after a few months, our food ran out. The others moved to a new hiding place where there was more food. We visited each other. And then the three agreed they should limit their contact with each other to avoid being detected. They had like Sunday dinners. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yokoi took three months to construct his cave, which is about 500 meters away from the one he left where they were still at. And the interior of his cave was about three feet high 
and nine feet long. And it was seven feet underground. It was supported by bamboo canes. And this was in Telefofo. Oh, wow. And there's a lot of bamboo over there. He made this like thing, like a like a door that would close, mm-hmm. like a hole. And it had a door with a ladder. The floors and walls were covered with bamboo. And he even constructed an indoor toilet. So the other two soldiers had been his only contact for about eight years before he was captured. But he found them dead. I guess they said that they, I read somewhere they died in a flood or they drowned in some floods in 1964. And we know here it can rain real hard. I mean, any tropical island and real hard and it can flood pretty fast. Real fast. So who knows if they were underneath and for whatever reason they they couldn't get out. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess he buried them in a cave um, and he told when he was found later, he was like they're over here. He also, when he was by himself, he also caught wild pigs, which there's a lot All of right. those. Yeah, he ate breadfruit, papaya. He learned how to process fading, but we know that that's a cycad. Yeah, and I guess if it's not maybe the seeds, if it's not processed correctly, it can be poisonous. Right. Yeah, I do know about that because bats will eat them. Right. Yes. And then there was this thing about. How like people would eat bats and then they might get a little sick. They get the toxicity yeah. from the yeah from them from eating the... the cycads. But he figured it out how to eat them, process it, and eat it without getting sick. I bet that was a trial and error. Uh, I wondered. Um, I guess he bathed frequently to avoid getting lice or ringworm. And oh. I think he was next. He might have been next to the river, right? I mean, close that makes by. Sense. Yeah. yeah, he moved only at night in the darkness. Creepy. Super creepy. He was found. This was 51 years ago on January 24th, 1972. Jeez. Yeah. He was found by some hunters from Telefofo named Manuel de Gracia and Jesus Duenas. And they were checking some fish traps that evening. And the hunters noticed a man by the river who, according to the report to the police, they assumed was a, somebody from their village. Mm-hmm. And they came up on it. Maybe they were like, hey, bro, what's up? And they surprised him and he charged at them. <laughs> oh, my God. And he had this like homemade net, like net he had yeah, made to yeah. get shrimp. And he was still like scared. He thought they were going to like kill him or something. Right. So he panicked, but he was really weak mm. and frail because he had been, you know, just surviving, surviving for 20 some years. I just imagine that those two guys had like massive froze because you said it was like 70s, <laughs> 1972. Right? Just like huge <laughs> froed out hair. Because uh-huh. I've seen pictures of Islanders in the 70s and that was like a very popular style. Right. Like, and and he was like, what is happening? Like, yeah. He's like, why is your hair so amazingly huge? <laughs> so, yeah. So at this point, he had been out there for 26 years and 151 days. Which is pretty insane. That is insane. Yeah. So basically, he was so like, I mean, he was 57 years old by this time. They just kind of grabbed him. They're like, just calm down here, this poor old guy. Have some betel nut. Right? They got him. They kind of held him. Um, They brought him out of the jungle. They had to kind of, they had to tie him up because he was just. Restrain him. He was, yeah. He was not going peacefully. Nicely, yeah. And as he was led through the jungle, he had asked them to kill him then and there. But they were like, hey, just calm down. They took him back. Uh, I think they took him to the mayor's office, probably, which was probably the police station (laughs) all at once. They're probably going to call police. And they gave him some 
like food. They were really nice to him. And he was like, why are you guys being so nice to me? There was a police lieutenant at the time, Mariano Cruz, described him as about five feet, six inches tall, skinny, pale, appeared weak, a short beard, hair roughly trimmed on the back, barefoot and dressed with dirty short pants and a shirt. So he did say, he's like, I'm an army sergeant. He said he'd been there and hiding for a long time. And he had two friends that died like eight years earlier. He also pointed to the clothes he was wearing that they were made of fibers. He had woven together himself. Because he was a tailor. Yeah. He was interviewed at the Aganya police headquarters. And I guess there was a Japanese consul at the time Mm. named uh, James Shintaku. And he gave him all the, like, he spoke to him because, yeah, and told him, like, here's all my relatives. I hope they're still alive. And he said there was 10 of us who escaped in the jungle. And he knew that the war had ended since 1952. And he even knew that it was 1972 because he kept track of time, like, watching the moon. What? But he said he was afraid to come out of hiding the whole time. That's some Tom Hanks stuff right there. <laughs> I mean, but Tom Hanks would have just like... Well, yeah. I mean, that was a different situation. But still, like tracking, wild. tracking the moon and all that. I mean, that's amazing. But, but yeah, to be so scared to yeah. come out. I mean, but war, the war was so hard Traumatic. on both sides. It's not yeah. like it was just bad for the Americans right. or, you know, the people on Guam. It was just as bad for the Japanese soldiers. They yeah. were scared. And the propaganda that Americans will like eat you right you know i mean yeah. it was it was pretty bad but i guess the doctors checked him out and they said he was a little bit anemic but otherwise he was in good health hmm. they said and this is coming from his i think from his uh nephew said he really panicked after seeing he, like all these people for the first time mm-hmm. he feared they would take him as a prisoner of war that he and that would have been the greatest shame for a japanese soldier Right. And for his family back home. So officials on Guam were like, you need to go home. We're going to repatriate you <laughs> back to Japan. <laughs> we'll get you a ticket. Yeah. And they said that. And I think how he knew is he had found leaflets and newspapers like decades earlier. Right. So they went back to his his cave or I guess underground his dwelling. Ho- his home. <laughs> his his, his like hobbit hole. His hobbit hole, yeah. And they found there was a shelf that had handmade utensils, arrested metal um, food and water containers, probably that he found like left over from the war. Yeah. And some handmade traps. There were two grenades and a 155 millimeter artillery shell. And those are the only weapons he had. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because they found his rifle, but I, they said it was all rusty and right. useless because Guam. <laughs> because because Guam is unforgiving to anything metal. Exactly. And he was said, I guess he had hoped to present to the Japanese emperor, Hirohito, mm-hmm. and that gun to be like, right. here's my rifle. I did my duty. Right. I'm I'm home. They said his clothes made, were made of old burlap sacks, coconut, and pago fibers. Yeah. Pago is like a hibiscus kind of thing. And they were sewn together. He had to like handmade some needles. It's just crazy. The buttons of his clothes were made from discarded plastic, he found. So there you go. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Yeah. <laughs> what a, a thousand percent. He said he kept busy to keep his mind off things by thinking about his family back home. Mm. He was desperate not to lose hope. And in, especially when he was like really alone after his friends died. Yeah. He didn't have like Sunday dinners anymore. Oh. It's very sad. In 1986, he... Talked about a memory. He said, the only thing that gave me strength and the will to survive was my faith in myself 
and that as a soldier of Japan, I was not a disgrace to continue on living. Wow. I know. I mean, I so think hardcore. I think he is the longest survival story we've ever talked about, right? 26 years. Yeah. That's the longest. I mean, the good thing he was in Guam, number one, because yeah. like like finding food. I just know that easier. we know somebody who their relatives are the ones who found. Oh, for sure. Found him. For sure. We right? should ask around. We should. Because Guaranteed. I'm like. Guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. Some people we work with, we can be like, hey, who's rel-? and they'll be like, oh, yeah. That's and it's so-and-so. like it's like in their house in Talafofa, they have a picture, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh-huh. of like those guys with him, you know. Yeah. It's so wild. That's so trippy. So when he got back home in Japan, February 1972, he got a hero's welcome. There was like 5,000 people there. Wow. And he said, I have returned with the rifle the emperor gave me. And then he said, I'm sorry, I could not serve him to my to my satisfaction. And I'm like, geez, just give yourself like, you it's know, okay. a little it's grace. Okay. Just a little bit. Jeez. We were Did talking the, about what, what of our, I don't remember if it was the sciences or what we were talking about, like being nice to yourself. You know, oh, procrastination. These guys were not yeah. nice to themselves. It's it's okay. Like you did it. You did okay. You made it. Right. So everybody back in Japan was like, what the, I guess there was kind of different opinions. Mm. Some older people, you know, there were like. He's an inspiration, you know, he's like who we all should be, you know, to and, you know, strive to, yeah, strive to achieve, to really be that devout. But the younger people were like, bro, you could have just come home, surrender. They they said like his refusal to surrender as like a pointless and symbolic of an age that taught children to stick to what they were doing rather than to think about where they mm. were going. Mm. This is when things, you know, we're things were, to change. Yeah. were really changing in Japan for sure. So he tried to fit in um, into, this is a quote, a world that had passed him by. Oh. But he was, you know, he missed the past. Yeah. He was sometimes, you know, he criticized the new modern life to his nephew. Right. He's like, people these days. Um, he entered into an arranged marriage in November oh. 1972. And I'm like. Weird. Who was that lady? Is <laughs> yeah. she like, I'm good? <laughs> They're oh. like, nope. He unsuccessfully ran for parliament in 1974. Cool. I'm like, what do you know about current news yeah, and what? I mean. Right. I mean. That's just You've been street, in a hole yeah. for like 26 years. Don't run for anything. I can't. You're pretty like out of out of the loop, I think, at that point. I can't imagine just the, I mean, he should, he definitely had PTSD of some sort, but I can't, oh, for sure. I can't imagine the then compounded anxiety and PTSD of just that first, that when you're saying he gave a speech to like 5,000 people, like I would have just passed out. I feel like after we were done with Peace Corps, just going back to the mainland and walking through a grocery store was mind blowing. So like, right. 5, too many options. People, too many. Yeah. But like 5,000 people. Oh yeah. It was, he was overwhelmed. He's like, why do you need so many different kinds of toothpaste? Yeah, for sure. That always kind of bothered me. <laughs> Anyways, I guess according to this interview with BBC, or I don't know if it's it was a quote, he said he never felt at home in modern society. Mm-hmm. He died in 1997. Mm-hmm. But before that, I guess he made several trips back to Guam. Oh. Which I didn't really realize. I'm not sure how popular that was. Right. With some people. I guess uh, two years after his return, there was another holdout that was found. I'm going to talk about that next. Yeah. 
But like maybe people were not super stoked that he came back because of the kind of atrocities of the Japanese, like the the way people in Guam felt about being occupied. Yeah. By Japan. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. So in 2006, there was the Shoichi Yokoi Memorial Hall that was opened in Nakagawuku, Nagoya. And his original cave site here in on Guam and Talafofo, hmm. I guess I saw to a couple of things that they just, n- nobody took care of it. And so it fell apart, but I also heard it fell apart during a typhoon, which makes more sense. Yeah. But it's still marked, like you can see it if you go there. Yeah. There's also some of his possessions from that time he was in the jungle on Guam, which can be found at a local business called Jeff's Pirates Cove. Which is an Epan, which has. I have, uh, I have been there myself. Really good food, and it's really fun to sit by the water and go there. It's like open air eating. Yeah, it's great. But it's a restaurant. We love, we love Jeff's Pirates Cove. You should go there if you ever come to Guam. <laughs> um, and then you can get a sweet T-shirt. You can get a sweet T-shirt, and they give you free bandanas, so you can dress like a pirate. They do. Eat. Yeah, mm-hmm. my child has like three. Yeah, we have some. So also here on Guam, the Guam Museum has his story featured and there's an exhibit that shows his original clothing and artifacts. And then there's some like replicas of his cave. That is where I've seen it. Yeah. Is at the museum. Yeah, yeah. They say it's a reminder that maybe World War II ended on Guam not in 1945. True that. But in 1972 when he surrendered. So interesting, right? Let's talk about the next one. Yeah. Hiru Onoda. All right. He was born. This guy is like hardcore. Kind of like side note. I just watched um, with my kids. I made them watch School of Rock. Oh, so good. Because I love School of Rock. It's amazing. And then not long after that, I read this article about how School of Rock was so amazing because every kid that whatever they wanted to do or however they wanted to be. Yeah. He was like, yes, you be you and you do that. And you're amazing. It is the most positive. I mean, Jack Black's character is kind of amazing in that movie. He's he's an awful slacker. Yeah. But he has a nice character arc. And he, even in his slackery, slacker times, is super encouraging to every single kid. Yeah. He's just like, be you. Yeah. And you're going to rock. That movie is so great. I cry. I cry. So my younger one was like, this is boring. But at the end. Yeah. She was like, I love this movie. I want to watch it again. Let's watch it. But just the song, You're Not Hardcore and Let's You Live Hard, is what it yeah, is in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was yes. like, it always makes me think of that. Anyway, this but, guy was hardcore. That might be like one of my number, uh, at least top three styles of music uh, <laughs> is like, yeah, that kind of like faux, uh, hardcore, like rock, but, uh-huh. you know, like uh, like rock opera. Like, well, Tenacious D. Well, yeah, Tenacious D. But I'm yeah. just saying, in general, like a rock opera is got to be probably number two. Is It's like Tori Amos, then rock opera. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Because I, you know. It's you know, so fun. You know, I'm a huge fan of Sticks. Yes. Also, rock opera. Yeah. I love it. It's so good. I love it so much. Okay, so back to um, the Japanese holdouts. <laughs> yes. You're not hardcore unless you live <laughs> hardcore. <laughs> he was born... March 19th, 1922. Hmm. He, when he was 17, he went to work for a trading company in Wuhan, China. Oh, we've heard that name before. <laughs> uh, when he was 18, he enlisted into the Japanese 
Army Infantry. Mm-hmm. He was trained as an intelligence officer and on 20, December 26, 1944, so like at the end of the war, yeah. he was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines. And that is about 93 miles southwest of Manila. And he was ordered to do all he could to like stop enemy attacks on the island, which makes me think, weren't they all doing that? But yeah. I guess he was supposed to destroy airstrips and appear at the harbor but it says that his orders also stated that under no circumstances was he to surrender or take his own life he was like fully just the sabotage the agent of chaos yeah and i'm wondering when they say not to take his own life if maybe at that point the japanese were like can you can we just tell people to like Take it easy on that business. Like, we are having too many casualties. Like, we've lost enough people. Yeah. Like, at this point, like, do everything you can to to just, like, reign terror. Right. And, like, destroy things. No, but don't surrender, don't but surrender. don't take your own life. Like, just fight. Yeah, right? that's, that's strange. When he landed on the island, he was joined forces with a group of soldiers that were already there. And it says that the officers in the group, they outranked him and they prevented him from carrying out his assignment. They say because of that, it made it easier for the U.S. and the Philippine Commonwealth to take the island in February of 1945. Oh, wow. It's a weird way of saying that. I'm like, so because he couldn't do his thing? Does this, like, is this what he said? I don't know. I want to know, like, what this guy, he he almost sounds like like a mafia cleaner. You know what I mean? Like, he's like the guy who comes in and just, like, wipes stuff out of existence. So (laughs) within a short time of him landing there all but him and three other soldiers had died or surrendered so he got there right when all like the shit hit the fan and so i guess it says that he also got promoted to lieutenant at some point probably when all the like upper leadership was gone gone however however they left yeah and you know with his the people who were left he was like we need to go hide so they went up into the hills to hide these other soldiers were private Yuichi Akatsu and Corporal Shoichi Shimada. And there was a private first class, Kenshichi Kozuka. Good job. Thank you. While they were there, they carried out all kinds of guerrilla activities. Like they were crazy. Mm. Several places, it's noted that they killed around probably more than 30 people over the years during like police shootouts or other things. I also read this article, which was very Philippine-based, about the history of what happened there. Yeah. Where they were like, these guys were brutal for, like, years after because they were there for 27 years. Right. They were, like, killing farmers, like, cutting off their heads and stuff. Like, brutal Why stuff. Because they were were still still fighting. They were still fighting the war. So... Early on, to let soldiers know, like, people who were hiding in in the jungle, that they Mm. could return. Like, Japan flew over and dropped leaflets from the air. But he's like, no, I don't believe it. He said that the leaflets they dropped were filled with mistakes. So I judged it was a plot by the Americans. Oh. He thought it was propaganda. One of the soldiers, who Yuichi Akatsu, walked away from the others in September 1949. He's like, you guys... You guys are nuts, okay? Yeah. He surrendered to the Philippine forces in March 1950, so that he kind of spent six months on his own. Maybe he was just like, 
having a hard time trying to figure out what he should do. He was just Charlie Brown in it back. Yeah. He's like, I don't <laughs> he was know just what like, to do. I'm over this. He's like, I'm I'm done. It's been yeah. like years, right? So this to them seemed like a security problem and they became even more like what? careful and crazy. And yeah. So in 1952, letters and family pictures were dropped from an aircraft urging them to surrender. Because they knew who those guys are. They know they're there. They know they're still there, right? And so the soldiers were like, nope, this is a trick. How are they evading capture? They're just hiding. Like they're, they're just really, like good at being, they're they... really, really good at hiding. Wow. Yeah. There was a time, in, and this was in 1953. One of them was not Onoda, but the, the other one, mm. Shimada, was shot in the leg in a shootout with local fishermen. So imagine people that live in this area are like, there's yeah. these three crazy Japanese soldiers. They're like our nightmares. Like, so they would be really careful. Maybe take guns with them wherever they went. It's like, I would want to, I would want to move. Uh, yeah, for sure. But after he was shot in the leg, Onoda took him back to their hideout and nursed him back to health. Mm. And then on May 7th, 1954, so this is a year later, that same guy, Shimada, he was shot and killed by a search party that was looking for them. Because I'm sure they're trying to attack them, too. Right, yeah. Right? So he's gone. So now there's two of them. In 1972. So this is from 1954, and then there's two of them, to 1972. Almost 20 years. Yes. So 18 years. This is October. The other guy, Kuzuka, he was killed by two shots fired from local police. While he and Onoda were doing some of their crazy stuff, they were burning rice that had been collected by farmers. They Jeez. were just crazy. And it seems, you know, what's what's kind of nuts to me is that, like, they seem like kind of a nuisance. Yeah. Like, they're just, like, nuisancey, but also doing really awful things. Yes. And I can't... Like, people's families, like, their uncles, that, I mean, people were killed. Yeah. Really in horrific ways by these And guys. it just seems like, but why? You know, I mean, I know they're, because they think they're still... They think they're still fighting. But how are you going to be at war that long and nobody's told you what's going on? That's what a lot of people are... It's a head-scratcher. Like, mm-hmm. that just sounds like a mental illness to me. I, and like <laughs> I know. Right? And, it's and, like too much. Yeah, it's too much. And also, it makes me wonder... I'm just going to be a thug or right. a serial killer. It, well, it makes me wonder if they didn't have some kind of help locally by somebody that they could survive that long doing these like really active kind of thing. You know what I mean? Because if you think about the guy in Guam, mm-hmm. he was just like hiding in a hidey hole, scraping by. Yeah. You know, they said he was kind of thin. But whatever. I feel like These it might have just like been Rambo. that they're together. Right. He had people with him and somehow they reinforced that support. Thinking. Right. I mean, how do you stay that intense for so long? I don't know. I can't stay that intense for like an hour at yeah. all. So anyway, so he was alone at this point. Oh, wow. So that happened in 1972. FYI, he was declared dead in 1959. Right. <laughs> so they were like, I'm pretty sure he's dead. Yeah, they didn't. I don't know why, because if I feel like in the Philippines, they were like, oh, hell no. Like, those guys are still out there in Japan. They're like, he died. We're just declaring it 1959. But there was this Japanese student. His name was Norio Suzuki. And he was like, no, I think this guy is still alive because they're still, you know, it's a pretty remote area of Philippines. So they maybe just weren't getting the information in 1974, which was almost 30 years Later, after World War II officially ended, okay, so 29 right, years right, and right, some right. days, almost 30 years, 
he was like, I'm going to go find this guy. And you know what? He found him in four days after searching for him. This says so much to me. I feel Four days. Hold up. Hold on a minute. Uh What is the Philippine government doing? I don't know. (laughs) It may... I would be... This sounds horrible. I would be embarrassed if Mm -hmm. I were like a cop in the Philippines... I was like a detective. They were like, hey, you got to go find this guy. He's in the woods. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, well, Philippine army, all I can like, think whatever. is that he's Japanese and maybe he was like throwing out some Japanese like, hey, uh, it's me. You know, like I'm some Japanese with radar. the military. I, I don't know. I sure. I don't know what oh, tactics like, he used. Like maybe he was walking around just like yelling things in Japanese. Right. And because he's not from the Philippines. Right. He is a Japanese guy. And that guy uh, the other him, guy was like, okay, I'll come out and talk I'll to you. I'll make myself known to you. Yes. Right, right, right. That's all I can think of. Sure. Or just just mm-hmm. the incompetence. I don't even know. Yeah. I know, right? It's one or the other. It's something. So February 20th, 1974, Onada met with Norio. He said, that's funny because Norio was like, I'm traveling around the world looking for Lieutenant Onada, a panda, and an ad- abominable snowman in that order. Yeah. So he described this moment in a 2010 interview. This is Onada describing it. Yeah. He said, this hippie boy Suzuki came to the island <laughs> to listen to the feelings of a Japanese soldier. Suzuki asked me why I would not come out. I kind of love that. Amazing. So I guess they became friends. Like they they clicked. Sure. But Onoda told Suzuki that the only way he would surrender is if he received official orders. So Suzuki went back to Japan with photos to prove, like, here he's still alive. Right. And they went to find Onoda's only surviving commanding officer, which was Major Sho- Yoshimi Taniguchi. And, you know, he was like, huh? You know, this is like 30 <laughs> years later, right? The following spring, he returned with that guy the major Taniguchi, and he officially relieved him of his duties. He like, what, they went out to the forest. He was like, hey, you're, hey, you, you're officially you're relieved. And he was like, oh, thank God. And I guess Onoda was like weeping. He was, oh man, I have a question. I have a question. Maybe this is controversial. I don't know. Maybe you're going to talk about it. Okay. Was he held responsible for all of the people he killed? Because we'll get, it was we'll outside get to that. of wartime. I know. We're oh going to get to that. Gosh. Okay. They say he had with him a sword, a functioning Arasaki type 99 rifle, whatever wow. that is, 500 rounds of ammunition, and several hand grenades. How did he have all that? He just was storing it. I mean, between him and the other soldiers, I right. guess. They hoarded whatever they could. They had like a munition site. It was like a whole like what is it called? Those people who live out in the woods and like it's just like oh, oh, I don't, it's yeah. like whenever you ask me these questions on the podcast, I blank. Yeah, but, but I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Like the Unabomber. Like it, yeah, it, it was like a yeah, basically like that. Um, he also had a dagger that his mom had given him in 1944. Wow, to kill himself if he was captured. Oh no! Oh, can you imagine? That really can makes me you sad. Yeah, that you would give your. Like this that is that was the thinking back then. Just FYI, here I got you this special knife. You know, my son has asked me before if I would buy him a knife when we've been to like flea markets here, right? Mm-hmm. And they always have like people who make really fancy knives with like pearl mother of yeah, pearl handles uh-huh, and uh-huh. stuff. And he's always like, Mom, will you give me one of those knives? And I'm like, No. Absolutely I can't imagine not. gifting one to him and then being like, This is what this is for. Yeah. That's, I don't know how I saw sad. this crazy thing of this 10-year-old who shot his mother with a 22. Oh, geez. And it was, he had like three guns in his room right. that were his. Right. He's 10. Guys, 
Come on. Yeah, I don't know. Let's get it together. And he was known to have like a he's ten, but a bad temper. Sure. Anyway, I guess the major Taniguchi had said at some point, it may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. And I guess he promised this. So thirty years. Oh, so they so they said true oh. to his word. He returned for him at long last. Oh, you mean like when he left early when on they in the were war. like in the war, right? Yeah. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> It, that weirdly reminds me of the um, uh, Beck story on uh, Mount Everest and his guide was like, I'll be back for you. And Beck just sat there waiting. Which one was that? That was the Mount Everest story. Oh, mm, yeah. That's so I don't know. Sad. But yeah, that's that's what that makes me think of. Yeah. Well, luckily, he just, was in the Philippines and not on, on a, Mount Everest. Yeah, yeah, Mount Everest. So when he went back, he was big news in Japan. People were telling him to run for, like, what legislature or, like, whatever. <sighs> That's blowing my mind. Yeah. He released, I don't know if he wrote it or somebody wrote it, an autobiography called No Surrender, My 30-Year War. So he wrote a book, and it detailed his life as a guerrilla fighter in a war that was long over. There's a Philippine documentary that where they interview people who lived on Lubang Island mm. during the time he was there. And they were like, yeah, he killed a bunch of people. He did not mention that stuff in his autobiography. Right. Yeah. And and that's where they talk about he was, they didn't just kill people. They also did a lot of damage. Right. And when they did kill people, like I said, it was traumatic. Very brutal. It, it was not. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like they were getting attacked and they're shooting back. No. Right. They like. Attacked people. Yes. And then, you know, the news or the media also reported other things that were not quite very good. At the same time, they were like celebrating him as a war hero when he came back. He's like he's like the Japanese Rambo. Yeah. The government offered him, they gave him a bunch of money when he came back. He refused it. People, you know, tried to give him money. Mm-hmm. They, he donated it to the Yasukuni Shrine. He was very unhappy, I guess, when he got back with all the attention. And he also didn't like... The society when he got back, he saw it as a withering of traditional Japanese values. Ooh. In April 1975, and he saw he finally saw them as a bunch of hippies, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> and he left Japan and went to Brazil, and he raised cattle there. I think he had a brother there or uh, something. He met a Japanese woman there in Brazil, and they married in 1976. What? Yeah, and there was like a little Japanese community there in Brazil where he stayed. He was friends with the Brazilian people. They liked him. He allowed them to conduct training sessions on this land he owned. Oh, wow. So they're like, oh, we're friends. After he read about this Japanese teenager who murdered his parents in 1980, he went back to Japan a couple years later, and he opened up this called Onoda Shinzenjuku, which translates to Onoda Nature School. So I'm wondering, what is that like a survival school? Was it like nature? I'm like nature in air quotes. What was the prompt they say to do that? It's an educational camp for young people and it's held like in different places in Japan. I guess he thought that kids are getting out of control and they just need to be brought back outside and I don't know why this is some discipline. And then he would like mind. give them like a dagger. <laughs> like, like what happens no i'm well it's just blowing my mind that in my mind he's it's a there's he, so many like sharp contrasts to this yes, human, right yes. he committed these awful atrocities against people who were not in wartime. but he was still in wartime 
But it just seems so beyond my brain. I know, I know. The compre- It's h- really hard for me to comprehend that he wouldn't have at some point been like, no one else is here. No one has come for us. It has yeah. been, it hasn't been just five years. It's been 30 tw- years. Yeah. 30 years. And almost. like, what t- I just can't, I, I don't know. Like logically. Well, so here's this. So the president of the Philippines, yes. Ferdinand Marcos, mm-hmm. granted him a full pardon in 1996. I think it was in 1996. It was like, um, and that was, you know, for his whatever he did to the local, you know. You know, and it, it was a televised ceremony. Oh god! And there was lots of there were a lot of people that were very upset about that. Yeah, if I, I mean, I feel like uh, it's great that he didn't take money from the Japanese government or he like donated something. In my mind, it would be like, okay, actually, you know what? No mm-hmm. one's been at war this whole time. Like you did all these things. It was really awful. Yeah. Like it would have been better that he donated that money back to the families of the people that he. Well, murdered. so his wife did end up donating. $10,000, a scholarship, like a donation on his behalf to one of the schools there. But people were just like, we don't want your money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, would you want to be that student who's like, oh, I got. <laughs> it's like blood money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So like great. something. It's, it's so controversial, it's, right? I. It is blowing my mind. Jen. Because I am it's kind of like that is that was his thinking is nobody has relieved me of my duty. So I'm still fighting here. I feel like people... It's a little different than the guy in Guam. Right. Because he was scared. He was scared. And he... hiding. But he wasn't trying to kill people or... Right. He was just hiding because he thought people were going to kill him. Right. Two, yeah, completely different stories. And I just actively murdering people for, uh-huh. like, no yeah. reason. Oh, man. That's what I told you. Ah, that's something else. Make me real... Real spicy right now, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> You're feeling it. Well, okay, so he died of heart failure mm. in January of 2014 at the age of 91. 2014. Yeah, so a lot of these articles are I found on him are from 2014 right. when he died. And I was like, wow. When, he, when asked in 1974 what was going through his mind for those 29 years in the jungle, he said, nothing but accomplishing my duty. There you go, Megan. I feel like people... (laughs) Everything you say is like, I feel... I feel... You know what? This really grinds my gears. Let me tell you why. Listen, listen. (laughs) I'm getting a little verklempt. No, I I feel like, yeah, at some point, I guess people who have those kinds of mindsets, like so tunnel vision... Oh, yeah. That... It's very black and white. Always makes me so angry. Yes. And I have in the past worked with people who are very black and white and I cannot, I cannot, I I have to like, I have a hard time with walk out of the room and be like, okay, this is just how they are. Like, it's okay. Like you can try. Yeah. But like, no, it's like this way or no way. No, no. The, The world is not black and white. And obviously his, you know, comrades that were with him. Yeah. Felt the same way because it seems like. That's the way it was. Right. Whereas the guys on Guam were like, let's just hide. Let's just hide. Well, and I wonder too, because that first guy kind of walked away. Mm-hmm. I wonder how domineering he was to everybody. Like, yeah. it, he seems like the kind of person just in this, you know, obviously I never met him. I don't know really. But like, it seems like if you were going to be that single minded mm-hmm. for 29 years. Yeah. Probably you are kind. Maybe, maybe. There's something. A, a little, little bit off. of a bully. Yeah. Yeah. And I would assume those other people that were with him, it was like, you cannot. Yeah. His way or the highway. Yeah. And they were scared to be by themselves. Right. And maybe that's why the other guy was, 
you know, held back for six months. Yeah. Maybe he was really going back and forth like, should on I what he should not? do. Like, like am I going to be, am I going to go back to Japan and I'm going to be a failure? You know, like that right. was their thinking. Like yeah. they couldn't show their face. So I'm sure he struggled with that and then just finally decided like, this is enough. I'm just saying there has to be some level of uh, just, yeah. Well, and I mean, the, actually, it kind of explains it that his mother gave him that knife and then said like this, like it kind of, that's kind of how like, he was it raised. kind of clears it up a little bit for me on that level. Yeah. That, yeah. Maybe he had some kind of messed up priorities or life lessons. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, geez. So there's one more that was out longer than him. What? But not much. Okay. Ten months after he returned to Japan, Onoda returned to Japan, mm. they found another one. This guy, his name was, I don't know, sure, I'm not sure how to say this, but Teruo Nakamura. I know, I'm just, I'll just call him Nakamura. Mm. But actually, he was born, when he was born, his name was Atun Palalan. So they changed his name. Oh. Uh, October, he was born October 8th, 1919. And he was actually from the Amis tribe. He was raised like in a very poor family in the mountains. And he spoke that language, the Amis, Amis language. And that was during the time that Taiwan was held by Japan. And that was from 1895 to 1945 when it became part of China. Because after the war, China was like, yoink, we're going to take that. Taiwan. Thank mm, you. Yeah. Goodbye. So in November 1943, he enlisted in a Takasago volunteer unit with the Japanese army. And he was stationed on Morotai Island in the Dutch East Indies. And this was like, I mean, 1943, right? Again, yeah, yeah. right before that, the Allies overran the island in September 1944 in the Battle of Morotai. The Japanese soldiers, they fought real hard like they do, but they were just so outnumbered and they suffered like heavy, heavy casualties. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the, you know, remaining men that hadn't been killed, they surrendered, but others retreated into back into the jungle. His unit had been commanded to conduct guerrilla warfare, hmm. if that ever happened. He later told a reporter, my commanding officer told me to fight it out. So that's what he did. Over the next few months, a lot of the uh, members of the Japanese army were captured, surrendered, or died of disease or starvation, or maybe alligators. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he remained with a small group um, of stragglers. And they were just like, we've got to, we've got to keep going. But they had no way to communicate with the outside world. They were like fully in the jungle. Mm. And there was no record of his surrender. So the Japanese army declared him dead on November 13th, 1944. That's so rough. Yep. He stayed with a couple other Japanese soldiers for 12 years. They lost radio contact with their commanders. They had no idea the war had ended. And when the leaflets were dropped over the island in 1945, saying that Japan had surrendered, the war was over, they were dismissed, I guess, again, as like, enemy propaganda. Well, and I, you were saying that the last guy, like when they looked at it, there were like errors in the writing or yeah. something. Yeah. And I have to wonder on some level, uh -huh. okay, that maybe Japan was like, let's make some little mistakes in these. So whoever's still out there will be holdouts. That's... That's an interesting theory. I'm just saying. You know, like, you never know. Let's just keep them there. Uh -huh. They'll keep, apparently, are very good at single-minded missions. Like, they'll be out there, mm -hmm. like, ready for when we're going to restart the war. I'm just saying. 
That I mean, be... probably not. That's so sinister. Well, I wonder why there would be errors, though. Honestly, maybe it was just like the 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 copy what machine. If there was like a secret something. code, right? Yeah, they're like, no, actually, this says this, right? Or I wonder if they got printed in like New York, and somebody right. there made a mistake, and then yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What were they using at that time to make copies? Was it something that you just like roll with your with your own hand? Maybe, like, what were the copy I don't, I don't know. It was just, just the carbon paper was uh-huh, like a little bit uh-huh. messed up in one spot. Yeah, you know? and it just messed it all up. Yeah, and they're like, we already have ten thousand of these. It's good enough. Let's just drop them. Don't worry about it. Yeah, and then you end up. It with was these just guys. that one, that one like person that made a an editing error, and he was like, uh, and it's it just fine. like, and that's what led to all these holdouts. Yeah, <laughs> it was like one. And they're like, Steve. <laughs> it was that guy. Why didn't you write this correctly? Right? Okay. So later he had told the media that he believed the war was still going on because he heard airplanes constantly flying over. The planes, he, as they became more modern, mm. he thought there was an arms race occurring between the Allied and the, they say, Axis powers. It's just like commercial planes. Right. It's like it's like a continental and then in reality, I guess there was an Indonesian Air Force base close by. Oh, and oh, so no. they were just practice flights. <laughs> oh, no. That right? is kind of funny, but also awful. Also awful. In 1956, he left his friends or his comrades. Mm. Some people say because other men tried to kill him. I don't know. But he ended, like they they weren't getting along. Right. Probably. They were having like some. I would imagine that if you're living in the jungle with two other people, like there's going to be some arguments that happen. So we're going to get to this, but I feel like it's because he wasn't a true Japanese. And because oh. that comes up as a big deal later. Right, yeah. So he went off by himself and he built a small hut in a field and he grew sweet potatoes, ate bananas off trees. He went fishing. He like just did a thing but he only cooked when it was dark so the enemies wouldn't see the smoke from his fire oh my goodness uh-huh he i'm like if you're that close to an air force base and nobody would he notice that right saying he kept track of time by watching the moon cycles he kept the years by tying knots in a rope he said i calmly stayed alive there although i didn't have anybody to talk to buried deep in my heart seemed to be a glimmer of hope and expectation the only trace of happiness during this time came from the fact that I was still alive and I hadn't lost my sense of existence yet. Wow. How's that for 30 years? Just 30 years of survival. We talk about how a little over a year of survival, uh-huh. you know, because there have been some ship survivalists, right? Like right, right. Boats that are just like drifting in the ocean for uh-huh. like 400 and some odd days. And you're like, wow, that's insane. That years. He had a whole life. He had a whole life living in that little hut. Yep. Just chilling. Just chilling. Eating sweet potato. He also said, not to lose my life became my only goal, and that exhausted almost all of my time. Mm. Which is true. Survival, right? Right. That'll use up all your time. At some point, he made this friend, uh, this local man named Bai Coley. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. right. but And that guy helped him out. Like, he gave him tea and coffee. Like, they were like friends. He never was like, hey, bro. Yeah. Do you want to go home? Yeah, I guess he just like, he was probably just some old guy that's like, whatever. Like, whatever you want to do, if you want to be here, it's fine if you want to hang out here. But uh, let me give you some coffee, like, at least. That went on for a few years until that old man died. And then the old man, Baikoli, told his son, he was like, hey, can you please take care of this guy? Because he's out in this hut by himself, and I feel sorry for him. And so they think it was the son who actually told authorities. Who was like... 
They're like, okay, listen, <laughs> there's this guy, he's in a hut. Pretty sure he's a Japanese soldier that just is still here. They were worried about his health. Other people say there was a pilot that just happened to see his hut when flying over, like during the training. They're like, what is that? Like who, what is happening here? But regardless, in November 1974, the Indonesian government was informed there is a holdout and they worked with the Japanese embassy to organize a search mission. Oh, wow. They, searchers waved a Japanese flag and sang the country's national anthem in an attempt to lure him out of hiding. (laughs) And it worked. So in December, on December 18th, 1974, he came out. He was 55 years old. Wow. They say he was naked and exhausted, but in good health. I'm I like, mean, if you're like, how yeah. long were you naked for? Yeah, wait a minute. If, wait, if, didn't his friend like give him some clothes? Maybe, like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what happened. But if you're like living by yourself. <laughs> like just, who, you know what? Just go for it. Free ball it. <laughs> just commando. Don't worry. Don't even worry no about it. No one's looking. Command, a commando in a commando in the forest. <laughs> commando going commando. I love I it. I mean, you know, long time ago, that people went I, naked. I kind of love how they coaxed him out with the Japanese national anthem and a flag. Like it kind of makes me think of feral cats. And then a he just bit. came out all naked. Yeah, they're like, "Whoa, brother!" <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> um, no, but it makes me think of feral cats. You know, and you're like, or like, or like cats that are like a little bit skittish, and uh-huh. you're like trying to lure them out, and you're like. You know, like, and you like shake some food or something, Uh you know, like that's, yeah. Are you comparing him to a feral cat? I'm just just kidding. So, but they said he actually got a clean bill of health. They said he was okay. And they took him back to Taiwan to be with his family. So Taiwan now is no longer part of Japan. Oh. So when he got home, his parents were dead. His son, who was an infant when he enlisted, was like a grown-ass human with like his own family. Yeah. His wife, assuming he was dead, had remarried. And then there was this whole issue with his pension. Like, you know, the other guy had this like hero's welcome. Right. Was given all this money. When, when he enlisted in the army in 1943, you know, of course, Taiwan was a colony. Now it was part of Republic of China. And so even though he fought for the Japanese army, they didn't think they should have to give him back pay on a pension he wasn't entitled to since he wasn't technically a Japanese citizen. What? I know. I have no words for that. Ah, I guess everybody was like pissed. So, that's insanity. Yeah, because only a few months earlier, Onodad, that guy yeah. came back. And got all this money, even though he didn't take it. And the government was like, well, he's a full Japanese citizen. And he was a high-ranking officer. And Nakamura was only a private. That's what they said. Mm -mm. So they initially paid him 68,000 Japanese yen, which was the equivalent of around $227 at that time. Yeah, that's not cool. Yeah. The Taiwanese government actually ended up uh, donating a total of like 4 million Japanese yen. And that was closer to what Onoda had. I don't know how it translates. Like the pension but, is yeah, or whatever, yeah. But it would have been about the same. Well, that's nice. Uh, but uh, yeah, but in Japanese, come on now. Because Japan... Not cool. Military should have like, he should should have gotten the pension. So many things. So many things. Later, he told the New York Times, I'm very tired, <laughs> although I look <laughs> healthy. And I'm very excited to see so many people here. He was tired. Okay. Can you imagine being his wife? I always think about those things. Like... <sighs> You just like come, you come back from war, right? 30 years later. They put clothes on him. They wash his hair, whatever. He's like, like, honey, I'm I'm back. Hey, you know. You're like, there was this whole thing about, I read about like the, her husband at the time 
was like, hey, look, I can leave like out of respect. Hmm. But because they've been married for like 10 years or something. Right, like, right. She waited a while. That's nice. But then everybody was like, no, no, no. Just he's like, that's weird. Just go ahead and stay. I'm cool. <laughs> he's like, I'm literally a different person. I've been living in a hut in the middle of nowhere. Right. Right. Yeah. But he was like, hey, live your life. So he got an apartment close by. I mean, he spent time with his family still, mm-hmm. but he only lived for four more years. Oh. And then he died of lung cancer. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Lung cancer. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, he didn't have cigarettes, right? That whole time. Maybe that guy gave him some cigarettes. I mean, you can find some tobacco. Yeah, Maybe he figured you can out make, how to grow some something. tobacco. It's just like... Maybe he just smoked some rando stuff. He actually had some other stuff besides the... the <laughs> he, had, he had like his sweet potatoes on one side and then his... Uh, his tobacco his cannabis, His cannabis on the other side. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you never know. I mean, he grew up in the mountains. He probably knew how to grow things and, you know, farm. Man. I mean, if I were by myself for 30 years, I'd smoke. Whatever. You know what? It (laughs) makes it right. (laughs) Like, whatever. Can I smoke it? I'm going to smoke it. (laughs) It does make me sad that he only lived for four years. And then uh, Onada, is that? Yeah, that guy lived to be Uh, 91. It just doesn't seem right. It's not cool. All the things. I'm just really disappointed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've disappointed you. <laughs> no, no, no. It's those are incredible stories, but I just yeah, I feel bad. Well, for this and guy. so a lot of people get irritated also with Onada because he's like, I'm the f- longest holdout. And mm. everyone's like, No, 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 this guy is. He's like, No, nah, but he doesn't count. Oh no, no, no. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah. So there's there's that. Now we're at the organization to support, Megan. Oh, yeah, let's hear So we're at the end of our stories. And I actually picked the Guam Museum Foundation. Oh, nice. Yeah. Because Guam. Yes. And it's a beautiful place. We saw it being it built. Mm-hmm. And we were very excited about it. It's the people there are amazing, and they've done a great job. You can go to guammuseumfoundation.org. You can become a member, and you can donate. And their mission is to foster a greater understanding of the Chamorro culture and the art, history, and natural environments. I have to say that I love the beginning of the exhibit when they kind of take you through like like an old-time Chamorro landscape. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's great. The video is great. Yeah. And like the way they did the exhibit is nice. Yeah. I mean, you, the whole thing is nice. But If you want to know more about the culture and history mm-hmm. here... Go check it out. Yeah, that's very good. There's yeah. also another museum with the Park Service. It's the War in the Pacific Museum. Oh, yeah. And they and have, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's not bad. They have a lot yeah. of interactive stuff. And uh, and then they have a bunch of parks all I over. I like their gift shop. No lie. I go to their gift I shop. I love I just like shop. run in there sometimes and get yeah. stuff because they, they have a good gift they shop. They have all the things. They have like plant ID books and yeah. they have like stuffed fruit bats and... I don't know. I All the stuff. Their, they have a lot of cool stuff. A lot of kids' yeah. books. Yeah. They have every book on War in the Pacific. All the things. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, that was great. Those are, yeah, those stories I love. We've been thinking about doing this for <laughs> yes. a long time. And I think we spoke, we talked about it one time where we were like, we have these stories that have been sitting on in the shelf in our brain. Yeah. And then there was a point where I was like, I'm going to do this at some point. You're like, good, because I'm not going to do that one. Yeah, yeah. Like, just do it. Yeah. Get her done. Yeah. So yeah. There they're is. great stories. I, man, so many feelings today. I know. Mm. There's a lot of, there's a lot with these. I, I think the last one is the one that I feel the most for because you know why? I think it reminds me a little bit of soldiers from the territories. I think it's okay. It's better now, but I feel like there have been times in the past where they don't get the same fair treatment oh, as it, soldiers from U.S. mainland. So I don't think there's any change in like the FSM, like Federated States of Micronesia, um, who can be drafted 
or not drafted, but they can join the military. Uh-huh. Um, they're heavily recruited yes. out here. And we have a friend who is in Peace Corps with us who did a whole movie on that, Island Soldier. Yes. So you guys should go check that oh, out. Oh, yeah. Go check out Island Soldier. Um, but once they go back to the FSM, they don't get veterans benefits. Like nothing. You don't. They don't get VA loans. They don't get medical any of that stuff. Well, what about if they become a U.S. citizen? So they have to become a U.S. citizen. But they still don't get the benefits? They don't They don't get the benefits. If, in the FSM. In the FSM. But if they stay in the U.S., they can then get they them? Then they do, Okay, yes. okay. Yeah. But if you go back to their island, they don't get them. They don't get them. Okay, yeah. okay. There's no support for that. It's a big problem. And actually, in Island Soldier, there's a guy from Coast Rye who goes to, like, like kind of lobby, I guess, the legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, like just say like, hey, this isn't fair. This isn't okay because of the just high rates of uh, people who joined the military from yeah. out here. Because it is, it's like, it's a big opportunity to go to school and you get a paycheck. And but at the same time, you could be going to war at any point. Yeah. And a lot of islanders, like the percentage of islanders who go to the front lines of any conflict, is it's like insanely high. Yeah. Because and they heavily recruit, like you said. Heavily recruit. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway. Anyway, yeah, check out that because that maybe that's a whole nother story for another day. Or maybe sure. we'll never do that. But yeah, <laughs> just just yeah, check out um Island Soldier. Yeah. Okay, cool. By our friend uh, Nathan Fitch. That's right. He was in Should our peace, names. He was in our Peace Corps group. So Megan. Yes, Jan. Now that I've got y'all worked up, <laughs> what are you gonna put in your emergency preparedness kit for your those thirty days survival? 30 years? I mean, 30 days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for you, it'd be like 30 days. Oh, yeah, but 30 years of survival. Still thinking you're a soldier? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sort of, kind Mm -hmm. of. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jen. So this just like popped in my head. You know, I still have the iPod Shuffle from when we were in Peace Corps with like albums that I you put on it. You do not. Yes, yes. It's in my desk at my at the office. Oh, the little tiny the one? The little tiny sh- one. Oh, yeah. I that you can I like clip still. onto your, right? Yes. I still have that. And I had put like a bunch of stuff on it and it's at my desk and uh-huh. I occasionally will listen to it. I'm just that. saying that if you are going to be gone for 30 years because you're a holdout in a war, uh-huh. I, th- I think you would want something like that, right? Like an iPod shuffle with your favorite music on it. I know we talk about that sometimes. I can't believe that these men were able to hold their brains together for that long. Yeah. That is what's blowing my mind. Well, and then to have them come back and make them run for like some sort of (laughs) elected position. I'm like, yeah, no, no, let's not do that. Yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, I just I think that for me to survive that long, I would need to be able to because today I listened to that iPod shuffle and it's songs from 20 years ago. Yeah. That I jam out to, that I'm like, this is great. And really, you know what it should be? (laughs) It should be an iPod shuffle just full of rock operas. Rock operas? Yeah. I mean, but yeah, choose your music. Sure. Because... That might make some people lose their damn mind. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I feel like I would have adopted some animals out there in the jungle. Oh, for I sure. I would have like caught a baby pig. It, it, there would have been, been like, a whole, you are my yeah pet. There would have been a whole like well, you know, actually chickens. The part that made I would me have grabbed so some chickens. The part that made me so sad was the the old man who was his friend and then he died. That's like something that oh, if they yeah. put it into a movie, oh, like yeah. that's so heartbreaking. 
I um, think that there was a movie. Oh, I thought I wrote it down. There are different movies about these, but I don't know if there's one about the last guy, Nakamura. I'm not right. sure. It just seems that like, yeah, that would be this moment in the movie that you're just like when Wilson gets oh, floats away and Tom Hanks stop, is like, wow, I can't even think about it. It's like so it would sad. be like that. For, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's a level of emotion. Totally. Um, but yeah, no, I think I would bring for me personally, it would be an iPod shuffle with rock operas, just rock operas. But uh, I think just in general for anybody it could yeah. just be. Just bring your and iPod, iPod sh- shuffle uh-huh. with some of your favorite tunes. Yes. Yeah. Got it. You got to make it through the when 30 When we were years. in Peace Car, I had the big iPod. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it, somebody stole it. Oh. Remember that, remember that time the guy came into my house at night while I was sleeping? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was so creepy. That was so creepy. Sometimes I, I completely forget that happened in my life. Yeah. And then I'm listening to true crime stuff and I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. That kind of happened. It, it did happen. It totally. But luckily, he didn't happened. do anything to me. Yeah. He just stole my iPod yeah. and money. I had to, like some cash on the table, like maybe like 60 bucks. Right. And I was just out cold. I was because I just came from turtle tagging. Like yeah. I hadn't slept. Yeah. You know, when you tag turtles, you go all night. You know, you work all at night. Long. And I flew in then, you know, and then I just was like passed out. Passed out. Yeah. So I didn't know. But I remember I was so mad that I got <laughs> didn't have my iPod shuffle anymore. I was like, this is the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's keeping you sane. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had a I had the big iPod and I spent all of like one break whenever we whenever we went back to the States. Just filling you know, it just up. Filling it up. And I still I think just I, ripping all your CDs. Yeah. I have no <laughs> idea where I put that. I think it's still someplace in all of my stuff. But the shuffle I got, it was like right after Peace Corps, like sometime like at yeah. last year. Or I got something. the little tiny clip one yeah. that you had to press on the ear thing. Yes. Like clickety click it so many times yeah. to make it do certain things. It was really confusing. Like you had to read the directions a few yeah. times. Yeah. You had to you read them it. like like every now and then just to remember. Yeah. But it, I liked it because it would clip on my shirt and I could go running. And yes. I think I used it when I was getting my master's and I would always use that's yeah. what I used. That's the one that's in my desk drawer right now. I think I still have mine too. It's we green. should bust them out. We should. Just walk. Sometimes I walk around the office with it. <laughs> you can't Bluetooth, so you got to wear like a wired headset. That's amazing. Anyway. anyway. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for that story today. That was a great times. Okay. Glad you liked it. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by the talented and super nice guy, Jonathan Pillsbury. Thank you, Jonathan. Yay. Yay. Uh, all of this is possible because of an amazing group of Nature Nerd patrons. If you would like to be part of our super cool nerd community on Patreon, just go to our website at you're gonna die out there.com or you can check our link tree on our Instagram page, which is kind of amazing. It is. I'm sorry. But it is. Uh, another way you can support is by leaving us a five star review on Apple Podcast. Uh, if you do, Jen will send you a really kick ass sticker you just have to send us your mailing address i will do it if i forget hey if you left us a review and i didn't send you a sticker send us an email let me know just let me know uh also we would love to hear from you we get a lot of our stories from listener suggestions a lot we kind of steal them all the time yeah um because they're so good so if you would like to do that Go to our website. We have a contact page at you're gonna die out there.com or an email, you're gonna die out there at gmail.com. And at the beginning of the episode, we give you a shout out. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.